Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Season 5 of And The Writer Is with your host, Ross Golan. Before I give my spiel, I want to acknowledge the music army that listens to this podcast every week. Since starting this, the And The Writer Is community has literally changed the history of the music business by helping pass the Music Modernization Act, gotten songwriters added to Album of the Year for the Grammys, and still is advocating for positive changes for our industry on a daily basis. So thank you and congrats. Now, as you know, I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music, a proud independent music publisher and advocate for the songwriter and artist community over six decades worldwide. Abco is home to iconic songs and writers of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack. And into the 21st century, with chart-breaking hits like Mariah Carey's We Belong Together, and more. Find out about Abco by visiting their website at www.abco.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-talented, multi-Tony award-winning, multi-hyphenated composer, director, singer, and orchestrator has evolved from prodigy to staple in the Broadway community over the past two decades. Breathe, for Christ's sake. It's written by a true librettist. Um, uh, Is that a word? It is, right? He's crafted scores including Parade, The Last five years, Urban Cowboy, Bridges of Madison County, and Honeymoon in Vegas, and yet he doesn't just stop at the Broadway world. Oh no, in fact, this guy gave Ariana Grande her big break. His musical 13 was her first introduction to the world of entertainment. They even co-wrote a song for the album Dangerous Woman. He's had shows adapted into movies. He's released solo albums, but this overachieving New Yorker still is a success family man and the writer is the notorious jrb jason robert brown thank you thank you okay well hi hi that was a lot more energy than i expected i'll try and i'll, I'll try and match that at some point today um 
I kind of get the feeling that you and I have a similar tone of of relaxation. So if it's sort of a zen vibe in this room right now. Also, <laughs> the room really is pretty zen vibey. But hi. I'm with it. I'm good for it. So, um, uh, man, I have so many questions. Uh, th- what's cool about this episode is that uh, I feel like you have an opportunity to teach a lot of our writers what the life is. Uh, what a what your life is like Gosh, yeah. as a as a composer in the Broadway world. I I think what happens um, is that everyone always feels like they can do both. You know, there's always the the pop writers who want to write a musical. There are musical writers who want to write pop songs. There's people who view songs in different ways, and you've actually done a bit of all of it. So I, I want to get into all the accomplishments, but I want to start from the beginning um, because you're born in New York State. I was, yeah, just out of New York City. And uh, were your parents musicians? No, we have no musicians anywhere in my family. I'm sort of the weird guy. How um, how young were you when you started? I was like, I think I was like seven, and I said I really want a piano. And my grandfather had one hidden in the basement of his uh, of his brownstone in Brooklyn someplace, and so they dragged it out and put it in my living room, and I just started playing the theme from Star Wars. Crazy. And it, you just started figuring it out, and it was just yeah. natural. You just got it. I, I mean, I was never, and I'm still not, like a prodigious pianist, you know, in the in the sense that, like, I can just whip through Beethoven and knock that all out. I, I was always developing whatever my own specific style was, and that's still the way I play. Yeah. Um, you went to school for music, though. You went to... I did. I went know. to Eastman. Uh, yeah. when, I, when I, I didn't stay for very long, but, uh, yeah, I went there for college. Uh, and I did, you know, I was there as a composition major, um, which mainly involved, you know, sort of like horn-rimmed glasses and a lot of pencils <laughs> and, you know, a, a lot of people screaming about serialism. But uh, um, after that, I uh, I left and I really, I, even while I was at Eastman, I thought, no, I want to do this musical theater thing. That That's the thing that I feel like I I understand the most, you know, that it, on, on an emotional level, I understand it. And on a technical level, I felt like I got it. Did you when you were little? Did you want to? What kind of music were you listening to? I listened to everything, but you know, I'm I'm a, a a Jewish kid from the Northeast who grew up in the '70s, so everything comes down to Billy Joel, I think, yeah. ultimately. But uh, you know, it was Billy Joel, and it was Paul Simon, and it was Carol King, and it was uh, ultimately it was Joni Mitchell, and a lot of that. But there was at the same time, it was all the things that you know. Uh, a reasonably cultured middle class family was supposed to listen to. So uh, there was a lot of Leonard Bernstein in my life, and there was a lot of uh, Stephen Sondheim, and there was, you know, a, a, a sort of healthy dose of uh, of what we'd all call sort of culture. And, and so <laughs> I, uh, I I had a lot of that, and that started seeping in fairly early. Why didn't you end up writing like Billy? I mean, there's some some influences that you hear obviously throughout your scores, but why? Did you not try to pursue being an artist first? Or maybe you did. But why did you not pursue being an artist? Why did you not pursue songwriting when you're listening to Carole King, you're listening, you're listening Billy Joel? You know, you could I have think, done those things too. I think I could have then. I don't know that I had a lot of confidence in myself as a as a brand, you know, somebody who was going to put myself at the front and say, this is me and I want people, you know, I liked singing and I liked playing the piano and I liked the spotlight, but uh, I I guess I felt like I just had more interesting things to say in the theater. Um, 
I uh, I was worried that as a, a pop writer, I was going to kind of run out of ideas pretty fast. When you leave Eastman, and usually we don't skip this far ahead this fast, but you leave Eastman and you want to do musical theater, you moved to the city? I didn't. First I went to Miami because I had to make a living, so I taught at the New World School of the Arts out there. For oh, a year. interesting. Is um, that where the the title of the... No, it's a weird coincidence that I didn't even notice at the time, and then like about a year later I was like, well, that's silly. But um, yeah, I uh, I had a girlfriend uh, in Miami, so I just went to live with her, and uh, I taught at the high school for the arts there. And after a year, I was like, well, this is silly. I'm supposed to go to New York City, so I should go to New York City. How do you move to New York City as a musician? Like, what? Where? how do you survive? Um, I was a, you know, I, I was a, a fairly facile piano player, so I did a lot of playing for auditions and for concerts and recitals and ultimately a lot of piano bar, which uh, was more of a thing then than it is now, but... Uh, I you know I would just show up at you know bars in Greenwich Village and uh, you know sit down and play a whole lot of show tunes for a lot of old gay men and they would all throw money at me and that was I you know I survived. Yeah, I'm not sure if I got to the city today at 20 years old. I'm not sure that those avenues are still open. But you know this was 30 years ago. How did you know the you know the the standard business the the all of the musicals that you'd have to play to be a, a piano player. I know that sounds really ridiculous, but when I walk into a piano bar and you say to a piano player, hey, do you know how to play? Name the song. And they say, sure, of course, they just play it. Do you have that kind of memory that you can just do it? Or is it something where, how, do, how does somebody have that kind of brain capacity to know how to play I, I mean, piano like I can that? only speak for myself that the brain capacity is directly related to how much I'm exposed to something and how much I care about it. And I was an actor at the same time that I was a... Oh, uh, you know, right. not Never in New York, but all through high school and even a little bit in college, I did a lot of acting, and that was my wheelhouse, was I was a singing actor. So I knew what the repertory was. And if you have a reasonably good set of ears and a reasonably good set of fingers, you can make your way through a lot of musical theater stuff. I mean, it's not Brahms. So, you know, I... I could make my way through pretty much anything at a certain point as long as I had it in my ear. And if I didn't have it in my ear, I had to know how to read it really fast, which I learned how to do. Yeah, I imagine learning all of that material is really good for composing. You know, I mean, because you you then can... My problem when I would practice growing up is someone would give me material to practice, I would take the chord changes and start writing my own song and not well, even bother practicing, which is why I'm a shitty instrumentalist. Well, but I think it's I think it's all sort of the same thing, because I did that also. Uh, I'm, I've never been particularly good at practicing, but I just, I loved playing. I loved the, the, the physical sensation of making music by hitting an instrument and having sounds come out of it. Um, and I needed to make a living. So, you know, I, I, got, I got good at it. Uh, I think that the trickiest thing about all of that is the question about whether what you're doing is actually helping your music by absorbing all of this other stuff or whether you're in fact sort of squashing your music or diluting it in some way by having all of these other sounds coming around it. Hmm. And I think, uh, you know, for me, I've just had to make my peace with it is what it is. I mean, you know, you, you do what you do. I happen to have a very wide taste in uh, in music. And so... Uh, a lot of different influences come creeping in. And so what I like to think is that the end result 
whatever mishmash of influences is, oh, okay, that's what I sound like. I sound like this is the thing that I love about this and this is the thing I love about this and I pull that and I pull that and ultimately what comes out, what, you know, what gets baked is the sound of me even though the ingredients were not necessarily mine. I don't know anybody who could like sort of invent a chord, you know, it's just, it's, it's all just stuff you pull from the universe. Um, but uh, I, there's a, there's a division in our business, uh, you know, between people who are amazing arrangers and people who are amazing writers. Uh, and I am a very good arranger, I think, but there is a real thing you can tell what's arranger music. And arranger music sort of comes from the head and it's really about manipulating stuff instead of emotionally allowing stuff to emerge. Hmm. Um, wow. And uh, I think you can always tell arranger music when you hear it. And you can tell in Broadway shows when the arranger came in to try and save the score. Uh, I mean, maybe you can't. I, that, that's a thing that you know I tend to notice when I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, see, the writer wasn't up to it. They needed the arranger to come and save them. And you know, yeah. you can hear sort of when stuff is just manipulated so much because the raw material wasn't strong enough. But you you have shows, and we'll get into some of them. But you have shows where you wrote the book lyric music and orchestrated it. Are there times in there where you saved your own score? Sure. Are there times where you were a better writer and you didn't score it well? Or you didn't arrange it well? Uh, no, well, because to be honest, if you write it really well and the arranger can't screw it up, then, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, something that's really... I mean, they, almost everything is in the middle ground. Almost mm -hmm. everything needs, uh, you know, arrangement. It needs a little bit of love. It needs a little bit of sort of massaging and editing and just, you know, general what that is. And the question of where one side of my brain stops and the next side begins is, is sort of an open question. And, I, you know, again, a lot of Broadway writers who don't do their own arrangements, it's much easier to find out where one side stops and the other begins. But, you know, I really... Uh, your relationship with your arrangers, your orchestrators, your musical directors is very much like a director's relationship with, you know, the editor and with the, um, you know, with the DP and, you know, with all of that, that you, you have to... You have to have a team that helps the stuff come to life. Uh, there are just times when it has been most efficient for me to be the whole team, but I don't. I, I, I wouldn't say that I want to live my whole career like that. Yeah. Uh, in this segment, what would Alex Lackmore ask JRB? He <laughs> says, "One of the things I admire about JRB's songwriting is that it is always so tight. He never wastes a note or a lyric or a chord change. Nothing ever feels superfluous." and the melodies and lines are always carefully constructed. There's a true craft and story present at all times. Where did that finesse come from? Is there a lot of toiling in the process, or do the ideas come more or less fully formed? The ideas don't come fully formed. Everything to me is about structure first. I need to know how a piece is structured from one end to the other and the structure as in like the whole musical or the well, song like what do you think well both I, there's a, a, a structure I, you know there is an architecture to everything that i write and so before i start writing any of the songs i need to know what the whole show looks like i need to know you know what is the story how does the story work and what is the vocabulary of the story and sometimes you have to develop that vocabulary as you go along but there's a basic sense that i haven't really gotten started writing the songs until i know what the rules are until i really know what are the blocks how am i going to start how am i going to finish what am i getting to it is it is true that you discover a lot of that along the way but just for the purposes of discussion you know it's like the, the, it's good to know what the goalposts are um and then within that 
there is still going to be 18, 16, 22, whatever there is, songs, little spots along the way. And I want to know before I write any of those songs what spot they're supposed to mm-hmm. fit in and what they're serving. And then, So you outline the whole show. Oh, yeah. Re- yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, how do you pick your material when it's a, a book or it's something that's not something you wrote? I mean, how do I mean, it's almost easier if a book comes in to find the the points of where the songs belong. No, not necessarily because I, you know a musical architecture is not the same as a you know as a novel's architecture or anything like that. And I don't just mean a, a musical theater architecture, but music has its own architecture anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you would find yeah. that. And so. Uh, trying to figure out an overarching musical architecture for a two and a half hour long piece, it's not going to be the same thing as what you do for a novel. A novel has a much different and windier path, you know, and it, it, novels have a lot more bespoke uh, direction in terms of which way they go. Musicals all sort of have the same shape, you know, and the, the way you do it within that two and a half hours or that 90 minutes or however you're choosing to do it, there's, there's a lot of freedom in there. But, you know, you're not going to write a seven and a half hour long musical unless you're, you know, really like, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm going yeah, for Experimental that um, right. But you know, if you're writing sort of a basic commercial musical, you got about two and a half hours to go. Um, and so, within that, how are you going to structure that two and a half hours? Where are the highs? Where, you know, are you ending up and are you ending down? Mm-hmm. Is the middle up? Is the middle down? Are you taking an intermission? If you don't take an intermission, then what is the structure? You know, is are you basically doing a three act structure and just not taking any breaks, or is it that it's a two act structure and there's a natural place in the middle for everything to stop, or is it a one act structure where everything really just wants to keep pushing, and if you interrupt that flow at all, everyone will feel it. You know, so what you want to do is just push, push, push until you get to the end, and that's how you end up with a ninety minute piece or you know, yeah, eighty five right. minute piece. Um. And then within that, all right, so I'm going to, so if I get presented with a book, you know, and someone says, here's a novel that we want to adapt, here's a movie that we want to adapt, I can't just say, oh, great, send me the screenplay and let me just spot out where the songs are. What I instead have to do is I have to figure out what's the musical architecture? How does this entire thing sing? Who are the voices that sing their way through this piece? Mm -hmm. And what happens to them from one end to the other? In movies, what what I've found... All too often, and it's really hard uh, when you adapt movies, movie characters tend to have things that happen to them. Uh, And they can be very passive. Uh, And there's a lot of times where all you have to do is take a shot of their face and they tell you a whole lot about their emotional lives. But they never have to express things verbally necessarily because a lot of the time it's just uh, sort of stuff occurs to them and they have to as they they have to react to it but musicals have to be driven by people who want a thing there has to be a thing that they want to do they're trying to achieve a, a, a character has to be moving forward in space because that's what motivates songs you want songs to be active not inactive it is the the primary difference between pop material and theater material is keeping material active keeping a character who always wants a thing i want to move forward i want to do this i have to do that i got to get there uh, I am trying to get something from a person, so I'm singing this song to them. Pop material is obviously not necessarily, it doesn't have to be active in the same way. In fact, it, in a lot of ways, it's better if it's passive. You state what you want in the first, you know, the first A section, and that's your song. And then you're just going to sort of reiterate that material over mm-hmm. and over again. In a musical, you can't really do that the same way because the audience is ready to move on with the story. The audience is hooked into the story. You're hoping that along the way of the story, they're enjoying the songs. But what they're hooked into is this character is trying to do a thing. And so the songs have to keep that character moving. And so 
as I'm looking at this movie, as I'm looking at this book, I'm thinking, all right, so this is the story of this person and this person is going to take this walk along this path and it's going to end here. So even once I do that, all right, fine. Let's jump ahead to the point where I finally planned out what the 17 or 18 moments are that somebody sings, that the ensemble sings, that the, there's a dance number, whatever it all is that, that happens that, to push the story along. And I'm going to look at that, what let's presume is a between two and a half and six and a half minute sequence song thing. And, you know, a song is a song. We all know what a song is. There's a lot of leeway in terms of what the structure of a song is, but essentially there's A, A, there's B, there's A, and then we all go home. And, you know, you can mess with that however you want to, but an audience is going to perceive a song once you start, you know, rolling down the hill. The audience knows which way the, the ball is going. And so I've got my A and my A and my B and my A. All right, what am I going to do now? I've got musical ideas that I have to carry through, and I've got lyrical ideas that I have to carry through. And these characters have to follow through. A song can really only be about one thing. So, all right, I know what the setting of the show is because I know everything about place matters to me. Everything about where is the show set. It's set in New York City in 1975. I think that show sounds different than it's set in Paris in 1896. I think that show sounds very different than it's set in Vienna in 1896. Yeah. I think that show is very different than it's set in Iowa in 1996. So all of those things matter. What is the character? How do these people sound? They should sound like something that is relative to where they are. So I've got all that information. And then is it a young person? Is it an old person? Because a 17-year-old sings differently than a 70-year-old. Uh, is it a man? Is it a woman? Where does their voice sort of live? Are they very verbal people? Are they not very verbal people? Um, are they very expressive? Are they not very expressive? Got all of that. That's information that I need. That information is actually the musical information that I need. That doesn't tell me anything about the lyrics yet, but the musical information I need is all about setting and character. What are they going to so, do? So, a lot of people talk about Broadway. When they talk about music, they talk about purists. And they talk about, you know, then there's these jukebox musicals and there's all these things, you know. Looking at something like Moulin Rouge, which is, you know, a hundred plus years ago yeah. in Paris, but really there's only one number that's almost <laughs> relevant to the right. music of that time. When you when you watch, the, you know, and, and also when we're talking about the difference in, in pop form and Broadway form, what a what a good song is in Broadway versus in I guess we didn't say a good song, but the general song. You know, you have so many jukebox jukebox musicals are all based in these you know pop songs that have been adapted to be on stage for the most part. Mm. Yeah, Um, I mean, I'm just not in the jukebox musical business. Of course, it doesn't have anything to do with what I do. So you know, I it's I can look at them and decide whether they're effective pieces of theater on their own uh, level, but in terms of being written pieces of musical theater, I, I just I wouldn't know how to analyze those or understand them. But you've written songs outside of musical theater. Sure. And I think that that's one of the interesting parts of your career, and I still want to go through some of the, the pieces that you've done, but you know, the idea of somebody who's started in this world and then has this world being the Broadway world, but having the ability to write songs outside of it, how do you address writing songs for your solo stuff? How do you address writing songs outside of a theatrical purpose? 
Do you address them differently? Uh, sort of. I mean, there was a period of time about 10, 15 years ago where I got signed to a publishing contract out in L.A., and the idea was I thought pop songwriting was a certain thing because I was the age that I was. And so in 1979, pop songwriting was a very different game than it is now. And so I got into it, and I was like, oh, great, I'll sit there with my piano and my demos, and I'll make you know these songs, and I'll sort of tell stories, and I'll do all of that. And I learned quickly that that just isn't the way that any pop song sort of functions these days, which was fine, but I was also like, I'm not sure I want to do it the way that everybody mm-hmm. does it. Sure. Uh, so I'm still, in terms of the way that I approach my solo writing material or when I'm writing for anything that's outside of a show, um, I'm still sort of functioning according to principles that I, I think governed pop music 35 years ago, you know, but it's really in terms of the harmonic energy of a song, in terms of the sort of the rhythmic motor of a song, in terms of the way that it sort of goes, you know, for better or for worse, I think most of my songs would sound uh, not at all out of place on, uh, you know, a Carly Simon album, you know, in 1981, um, which I I sort of, I had to make my peace with after a while. I, I just, I never entirely felt like I dropped well into the world of, uh, you know, lead lines and beats and, you know, that I, I just I felt like I don't really listen to this kind of stuff, so I don't really know how to write it because I just don't, I'm not passionate about it. Yeah. Let's go to the sort of the beginning of your professional career. What's the first show that you write that really, that that gets a production? Is that Parade? No, uh, the first thing was Songs for New World. Right, okay, uh, right. And I had, oh, that's right, that's right. That's I had right. come to New York and I had written like a couple of songs that were very definitely character pieces, even if I, I mean, some of them came from shows that were never going to amount to anything, but there were songs that were character pieces and I felt like I had a language that was mine. I felt like there was something I was saying musically that nobody else was saying, which was good. I was probably wrong, but I believed it, which is what <laughs> mattered. Um, and so I came to New York having a couple of songs and just thinking, I just want to keep writing songs. There was a, a show called Closer Than Ever, which uh, was a, a review that was off-Broadway at a little place called the Minetta Lane. Uh, no, it was at the Cherry Lane. And uh, guys named Maltby and Shire wrote it. Maltby uh, also, he wrote uh, the lyrics for Miss Saigon. But Maltby and Shire together are wonderful writers who had written for Barbra Streisand early in their careers and things like that. But they did a review of their theater uh, songs. And I went and saw that and I said, see, that I could do that. That's what I'll do with my songs. I'll, do, I'll, I'll sort of put them together. And so I began a very gradual process of assembling songs. And I ended up writing a lot of songs solely for Songs for New World. But I assembled songs into this template of I've got four singers, there's a band, there's sort of a a thematic narrative, but I was very clear that I didn't want there to be a literal narrative. I didn't want there to be a, like, you had to follow these characters on a story all the way through. Mm-hmm. I wanted there to be an emotional story that you were following, and maybe you didn't even understand why you felt a certain thing, but the songs got you there. Um, and so I worked on that, and I was working on it for a couple of years, and then I met uh, Daisy Prince, and uh, Daisy was at one of the piano bars I was uh, working at at the time. And Daisy and I just ended up talking about the piece and what we wanted it to be and how it could grow into something. And that collaboration ultimately is what turned into Songs for a New World, which is really 14 songs that all, they're not, none of them are related by character or by story, but they are all related in some sort of weird thematic way, which I will define as I'm 24 years old and this is where my head is. Let's go to Parade, Game Changer. 
Well, sure. I mean, by the time Songs for a New World premiered, I was already working on Parade, which was good. Daisy's dad was Hal Prince, and right. so I. Uh, I Explain who Hal that. Prince is. Who is you know one of the, the late Hal Prince, biggest icon in the last maybe in Broadway history. I just there's not a major musical from 1950 to 2000 that didn't in some way have his imprint on it. I mean, he was you know Phantom of the Opera is still his direction and it's still running you know 30 years later and uh you know everything's west side story and fiddler on the roof and sweeney todd and uh, damn yankees and uh i it's really it's endless to me I, you know i when i would walk in his office that you just pass a wall that had all the posters to all of his shows and it was the most thrilling wall and also the most intimidating it was just sort of like oh right That's so you I mean. walk in and hal says i like this uh-huh. I mean, how do you how do you go up? To, I mean, it's the Steven Spielberg of this world. It's the oh, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's the Paul McCartney. It's as big as you get. And here, this guy is sort of tapping you on the shoulder, and you're in your twenties. Yeah. Oh, I was I was twenty three. Um, and Hal said I was working on this show with this. I had this idea, and Stephen Sondheim was going to write it, but Steve doesn't want to do it. So let's get you on board, <laughs> which was a senseless statement, but it reflected that Hal had a lot of faith in me, and Hal liked working with young people. It made him very happy to, to be around, you know, and, and to get to work with exciting new ideas and to hear new voices. So he really, you know, he picked me out of the crowd, and, I, you know, he said that. I like that work. Uh, and we started working on what was obviously a very weighty, very complicated show. It was a show about a lynching. You know, it's a, a, a true story. Uh, takes place in uh, 1913 about the Leo Frank case, which is still, uh, you know, a hundred some odd years later, is still very uh, volatile uh, to discuss in Atlanta where it took place. And I started working with Alfred Urey, the playwright who had written Driving Miss Daisy. And, uh, and again, both of them were, you know, at least a generation older than I was. And um, we just started the process of writing a show. And it was it was amazing to think back now, especially... It's not that they didn't hold my hand through it, but they really did count on me to just come up with it. They really, you know, they 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 were expecting me to come in every week and have the material and do the stuff. And, you know, I think I rose to it. It was it was hard, but it was exactly the kind of stuff I wanted to write. It's a fiercely ambitious piece. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music, a proud independent music publisher and advocate for the songwriter and artist community over six decades worldwide. Abco is home to iconic songs and writers of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack. And into the 21st century, with chart-breaking hits like Mariah Carey's We Belong Together, and more. Find out about Abco by visiting their website at www.abco.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It you know obviously you won you won a Tony for it is was your impression going through that you know when you come across a, a new writer in any in any world that has just a massive success or massive names behind you that um, it it's so jarring because here you are working in a piano bar and then you're doing a show with Hal Prince did you think it was going to be an easy career. Did you have different expectations for your career than what has turned out? I mean, obviously you've won more Tony since that and done I so have, many more shows. No, but, like, but I've definitely, I've been doing the slow ride. I, I, I did not uh, get on the, the express elevator. I mean, in some ways, obviously, Parade was the express elevator, but where it dropped me off was not uh, sort of where I thought. And a part Where of did it is, they drop you off? Well, I, I went right back to working in the piano bar. I mean, you know, the show closed very quickly. So I, uh, you know, I didn't make any money from it. It uh, it just sort of came. And th- the specifics of sort of how I handled my career in that moment and the relationships that I didn't know I was supposed to make and, you know, the, the sort of... I, there's a whole business around the business that I was too young to really know about and it wasn't it was nobody's job really to tell me about it so i came out of parade and just sort of felt dazed i was a little like oh well i did this thing and now i'm not doing anything yeah um was it because you, you like you didn't have an agent or even yet or i, I mean, didn't like, have an agent mean? i uh i didn't have an agent and i think uh i was with a lot of people because they were so established they just sort of assumed that i also had it all lined up and so they just they all took care of themselves, which was fine and which was perfectly appropriate. But uh, there was nobody who stepped in and said, "Oh, here's what you're going to need." Which again, I, I, no, I was not, uh, I was not entitled to it. But uh, I think um, the the vagaries of getting the show up and the business itself, it was it was just a, a, a dazing time. And there was a lot about the fact that the show was in some respects very well received and in other respects not. And I was not prepared for people to be sort of so dismissive of it because it was really hard. I mean, at the very least, it was a lot of work and I thought people would at least say, oh, it was a lot of work. And some people did. Uh, but like I said, I think my main response coming out of it all was I was just dazed. Uh, and I think that lasted for a long time. Are you a fast writer? I was. I'm not now. Uh I have as what I say often is that I, I think nobody tells writers that they have all their good ideas when they're like 22. That like all the good ideas you're ever going to have are actually in your brain when you're 22, and what, you have to be very careful not to use them all because you're just going to have to figure out new ways to say them as you get older. Yeah. And so I find that if I sit down at the piano now to write, or if I sit at the guitar, or whatever it is that I'm trying to do, that I have to. I have to sort through the 150 or 200 versions that were easy to write Mm. because I've already done that because I've already written that and I don't want to do it again. And so I, you know, 
for me to continue finding new facets to the diamond, for me to, you know, continue seeing new ways to look at something and new angles. Uh, it's now, uh, it, it just, it takes exponentially longer every time I sit down to do it. Not, I will say not so much with the solo songs because that's, they're generally written for a character known as me. And so right. I, you know, I, as I change, I know what my character is and it's easier to drop into that. But for the musicals, I find that it, it takes a, a long time for me to Why don't you co-write? Why don't I co-write? So much of our of of the our you know, the podcast is about co-writing. And look, the wrong man is not co-written. Um I have collaborators as lack and all these other you know, but but it's I like the suffering. <laughs> in a um, really weird way, but in my in in the pop world, I, I almost exclusively co-write. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know how to do the pop world unless I co-wrote. You know, but why don't the, people? Why is it, it? It is very it is very siloed in 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 this world, and in, in a very positive way too. I mean, people are really encouraging, like you said. Hal expected you to show up the next day with you know, or the next week with new material, and you they encourage you, but. Why don't people collaborate? Why why don't you co-write? Yeah, I think it's just about me. I can't speak to what anybody else's feelings are. I will say that for me, there is this thing about... I mean, it's ego, of course, but there is a thing about having a musical identity that is mine, that I get to say there's a reason I am on the earth and it was because I'm the only person who could have done that thing. And... There is a real pride in looking at the body of work that I have and knowing that it is mine. And it doesn't diminish the work that I write with other people because I have one show where I wrote only the music and someone else wrote the lyrics, and that's that's sort of fine. Um, what show is that? That's uh, the Mr. Saturday Night, yeah, which is yeah. coming up. Yeah, that's a good collaborator too. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. Go um, ahead. But I think there is a general sense that what I can do when I'm doing something entirely on my own is that I create this world and I know how it moves. I know all the rules in it and I know all the, all the, I know all the places not to go and all the bad neighborhoods, but I also know that, you know, the sort of good restaurants I've, hmm. I've built, I've built this place and there's a lot of comfort for me in wrapping myself up in, in just that and I feel like when you're working with collaborators, you have to be open to, it's not, ideally, I guess, you'd be creating a world together, but I don't, my experience has not been that's how it works. It really is that you have two worlds and you're sort of trying to join them like Siamese twins and just figure out some way that the two worlds coexist. It's just hard, it's balancing. Um, yeah, I guess as far as the collaboration goes that you've had in your career that's really worked out is when, when sometimes when you're not also writing the book. You know, they, that's right. still collaborating when you listen to somebody else's story. You're in their world. You 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 envision, you know. Well, it's it's, I, the it's question like reading is a book really, before the movie's made and you're making the movie. Right. You know? I mean, the question is, what is my art? My art, I feel like, is this uh, telling stories with songs mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, over the course of an evening, over the course of an event, telling a story with songs to do that. So I don't feel like my my art is about the dialogue or that my art is necessarily about the visual pictures. My art really is about 
the way the music moves through the event. So I, I, I need collaborators to do the other stuff. I've, I've done it and I, it's, I, you know, it's fine, but I don't, I don't wake up in the morning dying to go write the book to a musical. I right. wake up in the morning ready to go write songs. That's what I do. When, you know, the, probably the most, the most autobiographical musical that I feel like you have is the last five years, right? I mean, maybe there's more. But that feels like that feels like that, you know. I mean, it's the one where the inspiration was clearly my own life, yeah. So it right. it, it, it certainly resembles me. But I, you know, I, don't I guess know, doesn't every writer I, say they're all, you know, everything comes from me because where right. else would it come from? But um, was that easier to write or harder to write because it was it's um, you know, it was a weirder to ha- I mean, that was made into a movie. It had a whole other thing, but uh, I, they're all hard to write for their own reasons, right? I mean that. It was easy to write in some ways because without even having to ask, I knew what the boundaries of the characters were. You know, I knew things, oh, well, they would never say that. That, you know, I could, I I didn't have to worry about that. What is the tone that these people live in? I thought, no, I know exactly the tone, which is harder with something like the Bridges of Madison County where those Mm -hmm. people were not me at all. You know, those were just sort of taciturn Midwesterners and I thought, I don't, I have to figure out how they talk, how they think. So the last five years was easier that way. But, um, but hard just because, you know, I I place a lot of importance on technique and rigor and making everything line up and lock up and making sure that when the puzzle gets put together that all the pieces are exactly in the right place. And that's just hard. There are easier ways to do the work. There is plenty of work out there where the puzzle does not end up being very even and the pieces sort of are all over the place and they're still very effective pieces and they're very popular pieces. I just, I literally don't know how to write that way. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, I try writing that way and it, it just gets me, when the rhymes aren't exact rhymes, I I, I start shaking because I'm like, no, I have to just fix it and just get it to work. <laughs> it's funny, there, um, Jagged Little Pill is, is there's not, there's no rhyming in Al- Alanis Morissette songs, right, yeah. you know? And even in, in, you know, in the wrong man and in a lot of pop music, a lot of it is the sound of the vowels is the yeah. rhyme more so than the actual rhyme. Yeah. But if I listen to Bridges of Madison County, those rhymes are rhymes. Yeah. Like clear that that that, that is something that is um that's that's important. Even I mean, a lot of your music the the rhymes are exact and the way you lead up to it often has the color in mm-hmm. in the sentence. Yeah. You know, is that something that you that's it has to be intentional. Oh, of right? course. And I think in a lot of ways pop music is it would be harder for pop music if all the lyrics had to lock in that way because I, I think in a lot of ways you don't want to get caught on the lyric. When when the lyrics are as tight as mine are, you have to listen to them. They, they're done that way because you're asking the audience to follow the lyric. They need to catch every line of it. And I think in pop music, you don't want that. By the time you know you get to the bridge of a pop song, you really want the audience to just be in it. They want to be in the groove and not sort of hanging on what's the lyric, what's the, how, how is that rhyme going to connect up to the next thing. It doesn't really matter by then. But in theater songs, you have to keep it moving, moving, moving forward. Um, there is a, there's some story where, I, you know, Bridges of Madison County, you win the Tony again. The Tonys. Um, but, <laughs> well, I like the Gens. Um, Agains. <laughs> 
Um, there was something where it's, you know, the worst part about winning a Tony is that you, you start to expect it when you get nominated. For those who are, this, I've heard this from people who have multi-nominations. I can't really relate to it. <laughs> but in, in Urban Cowboy, you get a nomination and you don't win that year. But the next year you win. Do you start expecting, after Parade, were you starting to expect that when you finish scores, do you start thinking of... You know, is this worthy of an accolade? Is this worthy of uh, a? You, you know? have to. I mean, because I won a Tony Award fairly early in my career, uh, I was relieved of the pressure of sort of worrying about when was I ever going to get one. Right. And right. once I stopped worrying about it, the awards become a thing that is very useful to the business, but not particularly useful to me. Um, so I participate sort of very warily in all of the awards chasing, but. You know, Broadway's a very, very small community, and it's a very tiny little place. And you're usually, I mean, what are there, maybe 30 shows that open in any season, and there might be three original musicals if you're lucky. And so you're up against three people. You know everybody who's involved. The odds of you winning are really based on, you know, what? It's these arbitrary criteria. So I... Uh, you know, you're supposed to go out there and like really chill for your show and go meet all the voters and do all of that stuff. I find it exhausting and it's not because my work is never commercially successful, which I say sort of with, you know, quotation marks around it. But I, I just the fact that my shows don't make a lot of money and they don't run for very long, which is fine. But because of that, I don't uh, I, I just write them. I write them the ones that make me that make me feel something really powerful. Why? Why aren't they? Um. I don't know. It's interesting. Like um, the, you know, I've spent the last two years coming to New York regularly and being in rehearsals and being in, um, doing. You know, I've I've just have been to so many different workshops and just so embedded in this community. And your name is the is set at such a high level. I, you know, people talk about. But behind your back, um, <laughs> I don't know how they talk to you to your face. But behind your back, it's always it's you're referenced all the time. So it's interesting when you know the idea of commercially successful. I don't know what that is because what is com- what is that? What is the word commercially successful? When from my point of view, as somebody who's a, a newcomer in this business, your name is brought up all the time. That seems like something that would be well, massively. Hopefully I'm, hopefully, I'm artistically successful. <laughs> commercially yeah. successful, yeah. I think, is a pretty clear def- definition. Is like shows that run a long time and make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> on some levels, some you know, it's interesting to see where shows like, you know, the reason why I brought up Ari is, you know, she had a lot to do with a lot of our listenership's successes, including my own. Yep. And you know, um, was she? Were you involved in casting her? This is in thirteen, and this really is what breaks her career. And yeah. uh, you know, not to spend too much time on it. But no, I know but I guys... always say that you know, no one was going to stop Ariana from being Ariana. So that was you know, I happened to be in the way, and I'm happy that I got to do it. You know, yeah. she came in for an audition. She opened her mouth, and she sang when she was fourteen years old. She sang like she sings now, and uh, and we were like, oh well, that's the greatest singer we've ever heard. We have to put her in the show. So we put her in the show, and then the minute we put her in the show, sort of people started yeah. coming to the show specifically to see this one number that she sang at the end of the show. Yeah. And we were like, oh, there's a lot of energy around that person. And yeah. all of a sudden she was doing the TV show and then all of a sudden she was becoming right. Ariana Grande. Crazy. And, uh, you know, it was it was nuts, but I, 
her releasing the song on Dangerous Woman that you guys did, is that how did that come about? I was in L.A. Uh, I was doing the tour of Bridges of Madison County, so I was conducting it uh, out there. And she called me and she said, you want to come over and work on a song for the album? I think they were they were in the ending stages of the album at that point anyway. Um, she said, do you want to work on a song? So I, I said, yeah, sure, why not? I'll listen to Ariana sing. And I, like I said, from my experiences in uh, you know, having my, my publishing contract thing, whatever that was, I thought, I'm not going to write a song the way that Ariana usually does it, so maybe that's what she wants, is something that's sort of weird and different. And so I went and I sat at the piano and uh, uh, Tommy Brown was there uh, most of the day and really just sort of trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. And, you know, I, I only wanted to play on the piano because they had a keyboard, but it didn't even like have a pedal on it. Or so, <laughs> I did. so, you know, he like grabbed some vocal mic and he put it in the piano and, and she just literally, she sat next to me and she would sing lines and I would just play this chord progression and we sort of came up with an idea. And ultimately what we came up with was kind of a melody and a structure. And then, uh, you know, suddenly some bell rang off in the palace and off she went, and that was the last I saw of her, you know, for a while. And then she, like, three weeks later, she said, all right, we're going to put the song on the record. Can you write some lyrics? And I was like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I was like, I, you sure you don't want to write them? Because they're uh, really going to sound, you know, they should. And she said, no, you do it. So I, I, I wrote something that she had talked about how much everyone was busting on her about her ponytail. And I was like, well, all right, we'll write a song about uh, what it is to be that person. And I wrote it and I sent it to her and she changed like four words. And all the, all the changes she made were things that I knew would sound better coming out of her mouth. She was, you know, she had a really good instinct for that. And, uh, and then Tommy was supposed to uh, produce the track and just make it work. And I think he was busy with the rest of the album. And, and there was no question that what I had done didn't fit into the rest of the worldview of the piece. And Ari would, you know, she'd send me these texts where she was cursing about fucking Tommy. And I'd be like, I, I think he's, you know, he's, yeah. he's trying his best. But I, I did throw you a, a big curveball. She said, you just do it. So I, my record producer, Jeffrey Lesser, and I went into the studio with a bunch of musicians and we did it and we Tommy had recorded her vocals so we just used the, the vocal yeah. take that Tommy had brought down and he had found this great bass player who had laid down this just so we kept the bass player and we kept the vocal and that was it and by the time all of that had gotten done the master for the album had already been delivered uh, and so she said can we put it on as a bonus track and I said any way you want to release a song of mine is going to make me perfectly happy whatever <laughs> so she said great so they put it on as a, a bonus track on the album uh the real, honestly, the real surprise was uh, when uh, we did Fallon. Like a year later, she called me. She said, "That's the song I want to do on Fallon." And I can't imagine there was a single human being at the record company or in her management or anywhere who was like, "Oh, that's a great idea, Ari." But uh, but we did it, and it, I had just the best time making music with her and singing with her. It was fantastic. I think that's that's so much of what you know. I the the question that. I've been talking to people about is like when I, I went to Northwestern to do a theater program, and the first question they asked was, "What's a play?" <laughs> right, you know, sort of typical sort of theater one-on-one question where you think you know the answer, and then you realize you can't answer this thing. And you could say the same thing about what's a pop song. Yep. And I think I understand that it's Schubert times three repeated that's your verse pre-chorus chorus you know it's like it's it's you know short sonata form you know that's a pop song but it's also an argument of like well what's what's a what's a good what's good musical theater and what's a good song in musical theater and i love these questions and i love that you know 
you challenging that, you know, what you think an Ariana Grande song is by just being yourself. It wasn't like you went there and were like, I'm going to try to write what everyone else is writing for Ari, and then you go and you write... No, I mean, you, know, you just write yourself. No, she's sitting in a room with you or with yeah. Max Martin. She yeah. doesn't need me to to do that. That's you know that's what you guys do. But I I think it's great. I mean, I think it's you being you. But I want to ask you a few more questions because I actually think we're running on low on time. But two questions I had. Um, I know you were working on King Kong. Yes. In the beginning. Yeah. Why did you not? What like? Did I would you have dodge? been perfectly happy. I uh, I um, they had done the show in Australia. And they wanted to do uh, a new version, and so they hired a playwright, Marsha Norman, who had written *Bridges of Coniston County* with me. And uh, they said, "You know, will you work with Marsha and just write like a couple of songs?" They wanted to keep a bunch of stuff that they had done in Australia, but would I write a couple of new things? And so Marsha and I tried to work on it. And it's very hard to write a show where the main character doesn't speak or sing. Um, and so we did our best with it, and we went through a couple of drafts. And I wrote, I think, ultimately. 13 or 14 songs, some of which were really good and some of which weren't, but uh, we did a workshop of that version of the show and then the director got fired and Marsha got fired and uh, I kept waiting for them to say I was getting fired also and ultimately the producer called and said, we would love to keep some of your stuff but we just don't know how to do it. I said, it's really, I, it was yeah. fine. I, and when I saw the show, uh, as I felt with Moulin Rouge, I thought this isn't the kind of show I would know how to do. You know, I was in the middle of writing King Kong, but I see if the King Kong that was up on Broadway is the show they wanted. I'm not even talking about the quality, but just the aesthetic of it. I thought, I, I don't know how to do that. That wouldn't have been my thing. So it was very nice of them to pay me as well as they did for as long as they did to try and write the show. But um, it was very clear that was not a, a world I belonged in, especially. The amount of bullets songwriters dodge without, <laughs> uh, by accident. You oh, know? sure. Most of the bullets that you hit, you take, you're like you're okay with. But the ones that you dodge, those are the wins. <laughs> you know, so many of the vic victories. You know, you put in the effort, you got the victory. But sometimes, I don't you know. know. I, I don't know that I would have even considered it a, a, a dodged bullet. I, if my songs had made it to Broadway, it's not like the show would have run any longer. <laughs> you know, it might have gotten worse reviews. It might have gotten better reviews. It would still have been a show about a gorilla. You know, it was. Uh, it, it was what it was. I got treated well. It was a, it was a literally a project I got hired to do, and so I, I, you know, I, I need a job as much as the next guy does, so I did it. But there, is, there are the differences between the jobs and the things that really matter to you. King Kong was never going to matter to me. Mister Saturday Night, Billy Crystal. Yes. How the hell are you working with Billy Crystal on Mister Saturday Night? It's really cool. I wish I had something to do with it, but in fact, it was Amanda Green. Uh, who's writing the lyrics, and Amanda and Billy had known each other. I think Shaman, Mark Shaman had been Billy's music director and scored his movies for 30 years, and Mark was supposed to write it, and then Mark's schedule just got so full that there was no way he was going to have time to do it, and Amanda and he were going to be collaborators, and all of a sudden Amanda was without a collaborator. And she, uh, we met actually at, a, at a, an event, and she said to me, would you ever write just the music? And I said, you know what, sure. I don't, she didn't tell me what it was for. She said, would, and I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it would yeah. be fun. Um, and then she said, it's for Billy Crystal. I said, well, then yes, of course. I would. God, why didn't you leave yeah. with that? Uh, and then I met Billy and I, you know, uh, we worked on a couple of songs so that he could hear it and I could hear how his voice would work around my music. And since then, it's, it was, it's been a lot of fun. He's, you know, he's a very 
uh, the hardest thing is there are times where he sometimes starts singing or he starts speaking the lines and he sounds like the character from Monsters, Inc. And I have to yeah. just remember that he's not, in fact, that guy. Um, but he's, you know, it's there, there are a couple of times, I think as I get older it happens more and more, where you just get to work with the people who really shaped your consciousness of the world. And Billy Crystal very much, you know, he shaped uh, the way that I, I look at the world. And to get to work with him now is really cool. Just incredible. Um, when when does that start? Previews I and stuff think, like I that? mean, it's all that all that shit is above my pay grade. But I think uh, it's a year from now we start rehearsals for yeah. Broadway. But I don't. I'm, I, I say that, and I'm not entirely sure. Is that something that can be performed away from him? Yeah, right. I think he hopes so. I mean, yeah, I would yeah, certainly yeah, hope so. Course. You know, none of us want to just write it. And but have he's going to be performing. But he's going to start in the Broadway. Yeah. yeah. How crazy is that, man? It's uh, it's it's pretty Dude. wild. You know, it's just he he always says things like, "Well, I'm not a real singer," and I'm like, "You may not be a real singer, but you have sung in front of millions and millions of people live on television every year for a long period of time, which a lot of people who call themselves real singers never do. So yeah. I'm not so much worried about it. You'll get there." <laughs> um, this is a, sort of a basic question after all this, but you know. Do you do you set hours? Do you just go and sit at a piano and say? No, I wish I could. I have two kids, so you know everything is you grab the minute whenever you have it. You know, and if you're lucky enough at the moment that you have a minute, you happen to be inspired and you happen to be near a piano. I I mean, I would I I spend in a given week maybe five hours really writing, like actually working on music, and that's if I'm lucky. Um, that was one of the other lack questions when I texted him was, "Hey, you got any questions?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's that was sort of what he was asking: is how much do you write at the piano versus away from the piano? Um, I tend to. It depends on the project. Uh, there's like there's one show I'm writing, which is an opera that's all set in China and it's all Peking opera stuff. And if I start at the piano, it all sounds wrong because that just that isn't the instrumental life of that. So I do have to write that away from the piano and just sort of uh, try and imagine what the the ideas are, and then I can sit down at the piano and work them out. Um, whereas if I'm doing solo material stuff or if I'm writing for a more pop show or something, then I'll sit at the piano or the guitar and I'll, I'll do that. But, uh, usually I try and spend as little time as possible actually at the instrument. Uh, cause I, I feel like I could get stuck there cause I just start improvising and playing and I'm having a good time and all of that. And the writing has to happen in a different place than the playing, you know? So I'll sit down and I'll play for like 10 minutes and I'll like get the ideas and I'll get, and then I have to get up and go and yeah. get away from the piano and yeah. go write it. Crazy. Okay, in this next segment, we're going to do five for five. Okay. I'm going to just list five things, and you can tell me something about them. Uh, let's start with Stephen Sondheim. Uh, it really set the example for me of what a, what a theater writer was supposed to do and what a theater writer was supposed to be. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a very difficult... He he was very clear that he was not a mentor because uh, I met him early on and he, he made clear that that was not the position he wanted to have with me. And I think that was partly because Hal, who was, uh, you know, his closest collaborator was really my mentor. And I think Steve was saying, you don't need me to do that for you. And so it took us a long time to have a, a personal relationship. But eventually we really did and we, we found a, a, a common ground uh, in terms of our are really our respect for the rigor and the discipline of the of the work. Billy Joel. Billy Joel, I I remain mystified. Really, I actually that's not true. I think I'm not mystified by why he stopped writing. Um, I, I uh, 
you know, he was so important to me. It just it, all, all of it, the piano playing was important and the singing was important and the, the attitude, the whole sort of like, I'm a rock and roll guy and I don't care if you don't think I am a rock and roll guy, that's what I am and this is what I do. And you know, just sort of all of that stuff. I mean, you see so, those early interviews and that chip on his shoulder is unbelievable, but it's like, that's what he needed in order to get through. That was, that was, his, that was his method. Um, and, but I really do see where at a certain point you try to turn on the tap and it's just so hard to get anything to come out. And, you know, his songs, he was a really disciplined writer and a really rigorous writer. And, uh, I, you know, I, I can see being Billy Joel and looking at the way the charts work now and working and saying, well, I wouldn't know how to write any of that kind of stuff. And so he just sort of turns off the tap. I, it's interesting. It's interesting that he still has a sort of public life and a public career uh, when he doesn't want to write anymore. Do you think you would like, ever turn off the tap? Uh, I'm tempted, but I think uh, I don't have the income stream. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, okay. I, I mean, I have to say, I love making music. I really do. I love the, the making of music and the working with other musicians. And I love writing. Um, but I think the pressure to do something that's going to be the next hit, the pressure that this record has to do better than the last one, all of that, I don't really have that pressure to begin with, whereas I think Billy Joel did all the time. Uh, and I think that every time you turn in an album and it's sold, you know, a thousand less copies than the last one. Everyone at the label is looking at you and sort of, oh, is it? Are you too old? Is it past your time? And I can see where you, after a certain point, you'd be like, well, the hell with that. I don't need that. Eastman School of Music. I was not cut out to be in uh, an institute of higher learning for a very long time. It was really important for me to be around smart musicians uh, for the two years that I was there. And I was around smart musicians and smart composers, and I learned a lot about what the capabilities of virtuosos are, which I think I wouldn't have known for a lot longer. In musical theater, a lot of people are not virtuosos. I don't mean the professionals. The professionals are. But when you're doing amateur musical theater, it generally tends to be sort of people who can basically get it done. And being around virtuosos, being around people who like, they practiced, they learned, and they were brilliant at what they did, that was so important to me. And, uh, and that's a big part of, I think, my writing now is I, I write for people who really can do it. Yeah. I think that's that's the difference. I, I've had some people who've been guests on this show who've come to rehearsals and seen us work on on a piece. And he, uh, one friend said, "How do you? How did they all learn the music? Said, you know, did you record demos with all their parts?" I said, "No, I mean, you know." Then this guy went to Berkeley. You know, very accomplished musician producer and and. I just said no, no, like sheet music. They all the singers here read sheet music, you know, just like we did when we were in college. But when you get used to working in the pop world, there's often somebody who's very talented but has no education at all in yeah, it, exactly. and so you're trying to assist them in becoming professional, and you make the best of what you can with their performance versus. The, the lowest on the totem pole in a, in a Broadway show or off-Broadway show is somebody who studied their instrument. Even if they are a dancer first and a singer second, they still know how to read well, I think, music I of think some in, sort. In, in professional musical theater, there's so much of a premium on time. Time is so expensive. Uh, 
And so I think what you need is what is the most efficient way to do anything. And once I'm out of this rehearsal, you have to figure out the way you're going to do it. And so I have to give you the tools to that. So a piece of sheet music remains sort of the most efficient way for me to say, this is what you have to sing. I'm going to play it for you once, put it on tape, do what I have to do, then go learn it. And then you'll come back tomorrow and we'll, you know, you'll have it down. Yeah. Um, your wife. Georgia Stitt is my wife. Uh, I was married once before uh, to an actress, and that did not work out all that well. And so I said, whatever I do next time, I want to be with a musician. I want someone in the house who, when I speak in a musical language, they know what I'm saying. And I ended up getting so much more than I bargained for. But it's, it, I, you know, so I'm married to a brilliant composer. But I, you know, there's just such joy in being able to pass music from one side of the house to the other and now to pass it through our kids which is totally weird because I again I didn't grow up in a musical family um, and just to have this house that sort of all speaks in this very common language of music is amazing and you know I I couldn't I couldn't do that if Georgia wasn't as brilliant as she is the piano is number five I like the piano when I first got to I'll tell you, when I was working on Parade, uh, the orchestrator was a guy named Don Sebesky, genius, brilliant uh, orchestrator. But he tended to take all of the stuff out of the piano and give it to everybody else to make sure that all the instruments were playing something. And uh, I kept saying... The piano part, I, most of what I'm doing is superfluous because somebody else is playing all of it. He said, yeah, well, the piano is not a great color. And I said, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I, but I do understand how over the course of an evening, if you rely on that color too much, it does sort of get sort of hammery. It does, it does get dull. But I've always looked at the piano... I think the way that a lot of people now look at their, you know, their samplers and their synthesizers and their racks of, of, of sounds, but I always, all I ever had to do was, was the piano. And so I know how to hear in my head the sounds that I, I want, even if what comes out of the piano isn't what I'm hearing up here. I, I know how to use the piano for that. I know, you know, how to use the pitches and the, and the, the, the percussiveness of it and also how to play against all of that. It's just, it's really, it's my... It's my closest collaborator, is that instrument. Uh, I know how to speak with it I, more even than my voice. Uh, the piano and I have a, a really good relationship. And technically, I'm not a particularly good pianist, but I, again, I'm really, I know how to get around it really well, and I know how to write on a piano. So I think in terms of, of all of my tools, it's the one that's the most reliable for me. And because of that, I also, that means I have to get away from it a lot of the time. Um, but... Uh, if you left me alone and say, you know, all right, you've got to write a show and you don't have a piano to write with, I, I you would be taking away sort of my best tool. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for doing this mm -hmm. episode of And the Writer Is. My pleasure. Um, you know, for for somebody who's looking up to the people who've done it well before, and when I say done it well, when you say artistic success, that's all any creator that I, I've ever looked up to has done. So, you know, you've done it so many times and in so many ways. And I, um, it's really impressive to see, you know, somebody who's developed a whole career. It's so hard. It's so many, it's so easy for people to have moments. You know, people have a fluke, yeah. but they don't have. 20 years and are still working and are working even now at a, 
you know, the same level or higher when you're working with the Billy Crystals of the world. But you're doing it, you do it well, and you have, you know, uh, you know, the fact that you're known as JRB, the fact that you have, you know, you have this ability to influence so much of this industry um, because of your talent is impressive, it's inspiring, and, and thanks for leading the way. You know, there's a, a phrase that I really hooked on to a couple of years ago, just this idea of the body of work. And I love the idea of building a body of work. And I feel like I've been doing it, you know, since I was really 20 years old. And now that I'm, you know, 50, that body of work keeps getting bigger. And the way that it moves out into the world and God willing, it inspires people. God willing, it entertains people. But most importantly, I think it looks like me. And I guess that's what I'm here for. I'm supposed to create that body of work. Love. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.